Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatment so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Now, today's topic is about important updates on thyroid autoimmunity or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, and we'll also talk about low-carb diets and how that relates to thyroid issues as well. I'm so very excited about today's guest because I have Dr. Michael Ruscio back on the podcast. I'll make sure to find our other podcast interview and put it in our podcast notes so you can listen to that. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Ruscio gives smart, busy people suffering from symptoms like daily bloating, constant fatigue, unexplained weight gain, simple steps to start living a healthy, enjoyable life again, no matter how long you've been suffering for. Specializing in autoimmune, thyroid, and digestive disorders, Dr. Ruscio has spoken at the SIBO Symposium Summit, Paleo FX, Ancestral Health Symposium, Sean Croxton's Digestion Sessions, as well as many other international conferences and top health podcasts. Dr. Ruscio, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Hey, Carrie. Thanks for having me back. So on our previous uh, interviews, you've interviewed me, I've interviewed you. We've spoken (laughs) about thyroid issues in the past. And uh, I know a lot of uh, our listeners out there, as you know, have suffer from thyroid problems. Uh, they feel like they have all the thyroid symptoms, but yet are you know still being told all of their tests are normal. So today I kind of wanted to ask uh, you about some of the important updates that you have come across when it comes to autoimmunity, specifically thyroid autoimmunity or um, Hashimoto's disease. Absolutely, and I'm I'm very happy to share them, and I'm actually excited to share them because as as I've spent longer in clinical practice, I'm always trying to make better sense of things and simplify things, right? Uh, and I, I'm hope, um, hopeful that for the audience that some of these things will really resonate because there's there's kind of a double-edged sword with being progressive in healthcare and medicine. On the one hand, when we start doing more, we have the potential to fix problems and get people healthier, which is great. On the other hand, if we're not tempered in our application of this, we can very quickly run into a syndrome of excess, going or undergoing lots of lab testing, spending thousands of dollars on lab testing, going on diets that are highly restrictive, taking literally handfuls of supplements. Um, And 
if that works, it's great. But if we can find a way to get the same result, but perhaps a little more efficiently, you know, less testing, less uh, copious, um, you know, details of, of the diets, uh, less supplementing, then I think we're really doing everyone a great service. So that's why I'm excited today because there are a, are a few things that I think simplify greatly the approach to thyroid. They make it less uh, convoluted, less, um, you know, overzealous. And one of the first ones has to do with the interpretation of thyroid autoimmunity testing. And I'm sure your audience is already aware of this, but just as a quick refresher, hypothyroidism is the condition that most people are concerned about when they start looking into thyroid health. It causes, amongst other things, depression, fatigue, weight gain, feeling cold, constipation, dry hair, skin, nails, what have you. And the most common cause of this hypothyroidism is thyroid autoimmunity or a process known as Hashimoto's. So rightfully so, many people want to know what the status of their Hashimoto's or their thyroid autoimmunity is as a preventative or even a curative measure to improve their thyroid health. So one of the antibodies that's used is called TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibodies. That's usually the most common antibody that's ordered. So blood tests can be done at most major labs. Um, and many patients have had this test performed to identify that, yes, they do have, in fact, this autoimmune Hashimoto's thyroiditis that's driving their hypothyroidism. Now, where this becomes kind of tricky is the interpretation of the levels of that antibody. Typically, anything above 30 to 35 is considered positive. Uh, but there's there's some gray areas to this, right? Using bl uh, blood sugar, excuse me, as an example, if someone has blood sugar over 99, that's considered high blood sugar. But if someone comes in with a blood sugar of 104, that's not necessarily cause for alarm. And it turns out that the same thing is true for thyroid antibodies. If someone comes in just over the range, uh, just over that 30 to 35, is not necessarily cause for an alarm. Now, coming back to blood sugar, if someone comes in with a blood sugar of 250, that is cause for alarm, and that's frank diabetes, and action needs to be taken quite quickly, and, and that can be quite damaging. For uh, thyroid, it's kind of similar. If someone comes in maybe 100, 200, uh, 300, that may not pose that much of a risk when compared to if someone has a thyroid antibody level of 900, 1200, 1400. And this is something that I've observed clinically for a while and always in the back of my head I would say to myself, geez, it, it seems as if patients who are lower, still positive but lower in the thyroid antibodies, 100, 200, 300, maybe 400, seem to be overall very healthy and doing well, whereas people who have antibodies that are 700, 1,200, 1,400 seem to be in usually a much worse shape. Now, there was recently a study that looked at this and actually did find that when people had a TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibody level, that was below 500, it was associated with minimal risk of progression of thyroid disease. And I think that, you know, this is a, a very uh, important finding um, because it, it gives us some scientific data that reinforces that while, yes, autoimmunity is, is no, not a condition anyone's probably happy to have, that there is a quantification of the level of antibodies in, in thyroid 
that can help someone feel you know, better or more concerned about their situation. And why this is mostly relevant, I think, to the audience is if you've taken steps to improve your diet, improve your lifestyle, maybe use some nutritional supplements that can help with thyroid, maybe improve your gut health, and you're feeling a whole heck of a lot better, yet your thyroid antibodies are in the range of 100, 200, 300, 400, and you keep going back to your provider and they, they tell you that you need to do more, treat more, test more, take more supplements. Well, that might be a recommendation that we can update. And thankfully, this patient now at, at these levels, uh, 100, 200, 300, 400, you know, below 500 essentially, they may essentially be done meaning that they've improved the health of their thyroid and they are really at minimal risk of progression of the thyroid condition and they can just go out and live their life. And, there, and there's one more thing I just want to tie in with this, which is it's also been shown that stress can increase a hormone called prolactin and just slight elevations of this prolactin have been shown to correlate with a worse prognosis of thyroid autoimmunity. So it is possible that, that inadvertently, if we're uh, stressing someone out or if you're someone stressing out about just a mild elevation in your thyroid autoimmunity, that stress might be more damaging than the actual lab values that you're seeing of the thyroid autoimmunity itself. So uh, again, in short, there's at least some preliminary evidence which, which correlates with what I've seen clinically that shows if you have Yes, positive thyroid antibodies, but they're in the lower, you know, in a lower camp, below 500. Ideally, I like to see them between 100 and 300. That you're at minimal risk of progression of thyroid, of hypothyroidism, and that at that point you can kind of go out and live your life and not really stress over it too much. So, Dr. Ruscio, that's fantastic information, and actually, you're the first one that I've heard this information from and and as you describe it um, using the analogy of blood sugar that that really makes sense that um, we shouldn't be freaking out about uh, TPO antibodies that are on the lower end of the range and as long as you the patient you're doing all the right things as far as you know diet exercise getting good sleep doing your stress management um, like you said Dr. Ruscio probably that's not really going to manifest in, in any important way in the future. Right. Isn't it? I, the, the blood, thank you. Uh, thank you. And, and the blood sugar analogy, I think, is a really helpful one because in so many other areas, us as clinicians don't necessarily freak out when something's just a little bit elevated. Um, but for some reason, that hasn't been done with thyroid autoimmunity. Uh, and, and I think it's it's an update that <laughs> needs to happen because I'm sure you're, you see the same thing that I do, is patients can become quite distraught when they don't see their antibodies go into the normal range. And for many patients, they never do. And then these patients are just constantly kind of stressed about this, which again, might, the stress might be more damaging than the actual, uh, you know, slight elevation of those lab markers uh, themselves. Yeah. And then just the, the sheer frustration from the patient's point of view. And, and I, I can, you know, just as you're describing this, I'm thinking of so many patients in my head who we're doing, you know, quote, all the right things. But we're still seeing their antibodies uh, elevated, as you said, kind of in that slightly elevated range. And so so now we can all like breathe, breathe, a, you know, a deep breath, 
and not worry about it. Precisely, at least according to this one study, but there there was one other study that showed some similar findings, <clears throat> excuse me, and then certainly I, I think it just has a whole lot of plausibility to it um, that, of course, someone who has these antibodies that come in over a thousand compared to someone who has 200, that's not the same scenario, right? The, the person at 200 is, is certainly in much better position than the person who's over a thousand. And like with research, more will be revealed in the future. Precisely. Yep. So, so um, can we talk a little bit about thyroid medication? Yes. Uh, so another thing that I think may simplify the thyroid, um, you know, care uh, um, process a little bit. You hear a lot about um, needing a T4 with T3 supplement. Or a, or a natural medication like Armorthroid or Westroid or, or what have you. <clears throat> and those certainly have been documented to be helpful, yes. However, there are patients that go on these and they don't notice any improvement. And some of these patients simply don't need T3 in addition to T4. Simple as that. Uh, so it's, that's, I guess, important to mention firstly that even though some patients do better on T4 with T3 doesn't mean that everyone needs to try to force themselves onto a combination even if they don't feel any better from it or even if they feel worse because even there's a small subset of patients that feel worse with the addition of T3. Uh, they may feel jittery, insomnia, uh, anxious, things like that. However, uh, there's this other subset of people that seem to always kind of struggle with their dose. Now, again, if, if, if it's someone who's struggling to find the right dose in terms of improving their lab ranges or um, helping them to feel better, one of the first things they may want to try is a T4, T3 combination thyroid prescription. However, there's something else that I've been following for a while and maybe a year and a half ago I saw the first study come out and I said to myself, hmm, that's interesting. A few months later, there was one more. A few months later, there was one more. And, and there's been a few studies now that have essentially shown that for patients, for some patients, a liquid form of thyroid medication is easier to absorb, may provide more adequate resolution of symptoms, and a uh, adequate resolution of their lab ranges. And when I say liquid, it's not like a drink. However, it's it's a liquid form that's put in a gel tab, kind of like uh, some forms of like Kylenol. It's liquid in a little, you know, in in, in uh, encapsulated in like a gel, a gel tab. So there have been a few studies that have shown that patients are able to achieve better resolution of symptoms, better stabilization of their TSH when on a thyroid, a uh, liquid thyroid hormone. And these can be obtained from a compounding pharmacy or as a uh, brand known as Tyrosint. Uh, and what's also interesting here and, and kind of connects to one of the next things I'd like to discuss or, or a little bit later uh, is how this ties in with gut health. Because gut health has a, a fairly impactful tie-in to thyroid, one study showed that patients with H. pylori, which is a bacterium that can uh, reside in the stomach and cause inflammation in the stomach and perturbations in acid levels, one study found that patients with this H. pylori bacteria who uh, were, were better able to stabilize their 
condition of, of hypothyroidism when using the liquid thyroid hormone. And what this may mean is that for patients who have impaired absorption, a liquid thyroid hormone may be easily more easily absorbed, and this might be why this subset of patients does better on a liquid thyroid hormone compared to a tablet thyroid hormone. And there is some other evidence that supports that, which essentially has shown that you do not have to fast when you use a liquid thyroid hormone because food does not impair its absorption. And they have done studies where they've allocated patients to two different groups, um, had them both consume either food or coffee with either a tablet form of thyroid hormone or this liquid gel tab form of thyroid hormone. The people who were on the liquid gel tab were fine. The people who were on the tablets started to become more hypothyroid as their absorption was interfered with because of the food, which is why most people are, of course, taking their thyroid hormone fasting. So this liquid gel tab form seems to be more highly absorbable you don't have to fast when you're on it, which can be nice. And it may work better for patients with gastrointestinal conditions or malabsorption. Even if it's malabsorption, that's unbeknownst to them. That may be part of what's driving their inability to kind of regulate or stabilize their, their dose needs. So that's also really interesting. I know as of yet, there's no liquid thyroid hormone available in Canada, but I'll keep my eye out for that in the future uh, because, like you said, a lot of patients, um, it's just, it's, it's just, it makes it hard from a patient perspective to stick there to their uh, treatment plan when they have to take something away from food on an empty stomach. A lot of patients start forgetting and then they're not taking their medication on a regular basis. And then, as you said, a lot of people do have poor digestion absorption. So I can see how the liquid thyroid hormone can be such a benefit. Now, were there any other gut issues that can impact with the thyroid as well? Yes. Um, So there's really a number. Um, I think one one or two of maybe the most impactful of uh, gut conditions on the thyroid uh, is is probably SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, mm-hmm. and H. pylori. And so there, there's a few things here I want to kind of tie together because big picture, the, the gut and the thyroid do have quite an intimate connection. And in my experience, the better I get at improving a patient's gut health, the less I have to do from a thyroid perspective. And w- with every passing year, I have to do to put it very broadly, less thyroid stuff as I become more honed with improving patients' digestive health. And so let me, I guess, quickly here cover a couple of things that that showcase that connection. There was one study that was recently published that showed that one of the greatest risk factors for having this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which we've talked about in the past, but that can essentially cause um, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, constipation, loose stools, uh, amongst other things, but those are some of the most characteristic symptoms. The, The greatest risk factor out of a number of risk factors studied that uh, predispose someone to, uh, or, 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 or correlated most so with someone having um, the SIBO, was either being hypothyroid or the use of levothyroxine. 
And what was so significant about this study was they even looked at patients who were on immunosuppressive medications or even had intestinal surgery. And even more impactful than those things was either being hypothyroid or being on levothyroxine therapy. So it tells us there's definitely this correlation that people who have thyroid conditions, either on thyroid hormone because they're hypothyroid or they're hypothyroid and they haven't yet been treated, they have quite an increased risk for this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and I'm speculating on this point, but that has been that may interfere with the absorption of thyroid hormone. Certainly, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth has been shown to cause other types of malabsorption. So it's not too much of a stretch to infer that it may interfere with thyroid hormone also. What's also interesting here is that another study has shown that SIBO is more common in patients with that H. pylori bacteria that we talked about earlier. Um, and when people undergo standard antibiotic therapy for H. pylori, the risk of SIBO increases even more. So, you know, we see SIBO increases the risk of, I'm sorry, we see use of thyroid medication increases the risk of being hypothyroid. We see uh, SIBO, I'm sorry, yeah, use of thyroid medication increases the risk of having SIBO. So if you're on thyroid medication or hypothyroid, you're at increased risk for SIBO. We see another study showing that SIBO and H. pylori tend to occur together. And then the, the coolest piece that ties this all together is another study has shown that treatment of this H. pylori can actually reduce thyroid autoimmunity. Um, and if that um, treatment of the H. pylori also increases their absorption, they may better absorb their medication. So I know that's kind of a lot there, but essentially we see this this interesting web where being hypothyroid, being on thyroid medication is associated with increased risk of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We see that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and H. pylori tend to be uh, common in terms of hanging out together or occurring together. And then we also see that treatment of H. pylori can reduce thyroid autoimmunity and may hopefully help patients better absorb their thyroid hormone medication. So yes, there's a whole heck of a lot of stuff going on with the connection between the gut and the thyroid. And uh, for people out there wondering about H. pylori, what is your most favorite way to test for H. pylori infection? I typically will test via blood antibodies, stool, and via a breath test. So I usually test via all three of those methods. None of them are perfect. Um, and they if someone does have H. pylori, it's rare that they actually all three come back positive together. So I cast kind of a wide net to try to uh, catch this as, as best we can. Yeah, it can be very tricky to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be. Okay, so if you don't mind, can we transition and talk about low-carb diets? Because I know that low-carb diets are becoming more and more uh, popular, so to say. Right. And um, does that have any impact on thyroid health? Well, you know what's really interesting about this is a couple years ago, there was a lot of fanfare about how low-carb diets might, you know, and I'm doing air quotes here, damage your thyroid. And it was, it was uh, it, well, I think, well-intentioned sort of 
health news that got out on the internet, but it was it was really misguided because it's low carb diets do not damage your thyroid. They they slightly perturb the way thyroid hormones are metabolized, but not in a bad way. Just because you're changing the energy substrate of the human body and you see some hormone shift in adjustment to that or in compensation to that. So low carb diets do not damage the thyroid at all. And in fact, there was recently a study published that actually showed quite a marked improvement in thyroid autoimmunity when patients went on a low carb diet. Um, and it, it wasn't a super complicated low carb diet. It was what they call um, kind of ad libum, which is you know, here's some general rules. Do your best to follow them. That that was kind of the low carb diets that people did, uh, being instructed to eat leafy greens, vegetables, lean meats, and to exclude things like legumes, dairy products, breads, pastas, fruits. And rice, so it was kind of like a protein-rich, as the pro- as the uh, researchers described it, lower-carb diet. And their carb intake didn't go incredibly low. Their carb intake maybe became about 200 grams a day, roughly. But they were able to see a 44% reduction in those TPO antibodies that we talked about, the, the treatment group that was. They saw a 44% reduction, while the untreated group or the group that did not change their diet actually saw a 9% increase in their antibodies. So certainly we see some pretty practical uh, evidence here that a the simple form of a low-carbohydrate diet can be fairly impactful in improving thyroid autoimmunity. The other thing here that was I thought fascinating was that many of these patients showed elevations of hydrogen on their breath test. They also did breath testing for the subjects in this study. And this elevation of hydrogen can indicate either SIBO or carbohydrate malabsorption. And we've already talked quite a bit about SIBO and how that's looped in with this. So it's potential that part of the reason why a low-carb diet decreased thyroid autoimmunity was because these patients had bacterial overgrowths and the lower carb diet starved those bacterial overgrowths and therefore had a calming effect on the immune system and uh, improved the thyroid autoimmunity. So it seems like low carbohydrate diets can actually be pretty helpful on thyroid autoimmunity potentially because of underlying gut imbalances in, uh, in gut bacteria like SIBO. And so since we're kind of talking about food right now, I wanted to ask you because I just got this question again last week from a patient, and I'm sure you get this question a lot as well, is about goiterogenic foods. Mm, good question. Um, you know, to, to state it simply, I think the impact of goiterogenic foods has been way overstated. Um, the reason I say that is because it's pretty clear that iodine, is, you know, too much iodine can be problematic for the thyroid. It's been clearly shown that when we add iodine to the food supply, the incidence of thyroid autoimmunity goes up. And there are so many studies supporting this at this point. In my opinion, it's bridging on like medical fact because the amount of studies showing that when we add iodine to a food supply, that population's incidence of thyroid autoimmunity goes up. The amount of evidence there is is overwhelming. So if it looks like 
too much iodine intake increases thyroid autoimmunity, then that would suggest that goitrogenic foods could actually help thyroid autoimmunity because goitrogenic foods essentially block your absorption of iodine. So if iodine is, I'm putting this really simply, but if iodine is bad and then you eat a goitrogenic food and it blocks iodine, then that should be good. And we do in fact have a, a couple of trials that have shown that Adhering to a low iodine diet has been able to improve thyroid autoimmunity. So um, there's not a lot of research that I've seen anyway that directly looks into this question of, of goitrogens on thyroid function. But from some of the available evidence, it, it does look like the effect of goitrogens has been quite severely overstated, meaning avoiding goitrogens, I'm assuming, probably doesn't have a whole lot of utility. Uh, but that's just my opinion on that. You, you, you'll probably hear differing things on that, but I think if we look at the evidence objectively, it's pretty suggested that goitrogens probably aren't that problematic. So Dr. Rusha, we're starting to run low on time. Were there any other important updates that uh, you came across that you'd like to share that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? I think that's it. Hopefully that will provide people with some useful little tips and pearls to try to get their thyroid health to a, a better level. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot of information. It was great. Thank you. No, it was. I'm, I was happy to share because I, I think that these are you know, things I come across when I'm being kind of a nerd and just reading research article after research article, but it's nice to try to get this out to you know, a broader audience to benefit from this. Dr. Ruscio, how can our listeners find out more about you? The easiest way is to go over to my website, which is just drruscio.com, and that's spelled D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And there's a number of things um, there that they can plug into, newsletter, podcast, videos. There's an ebook. There's a practitioner training newsletter if you're listening to this and you're a practitioner. Uh, but pretty much all the all the stuff that I put out is uh, housed over there at drrusho.com. So for the listeners out there, I'll make sure to find that link and put that in our podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Rusho and all the great information that he has. Dr. Rusho, thank you so much for being my special guest again. It's, it's been another awesome interview. Been a pleasure, Carrie. Thanks for having me back. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Michael Ruscio. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Kerry Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Kerry Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.